uh, since there's some new people here this morning, I would like to do the ceremony we did at the beginning again, uh, where I request that you give your first name and then let everyone say your name. Can you do that? Heather. Heather. Greg. Greg. Gracie. 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 Elizabeth. Laura. 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 Itai. Itai. Leah. 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 Kristen. Kristen. John. John. Ian. Ian. Monica. Sue. Sue. Deborah. Kristen. Yoko. Karen. Diana. your name again? Shane. Shane. Reb. Reb. Uh, in these morning talks, I think we had Two before, is that right? So this is the third one. I've been talking about um, Zen practice as friendship, or how Zen practice is friendship, um, the Buddha way as friendship. May I continue? Thank you. You're welcome. One of the ways to contemplate uh, how the, the way of enlightenment is friendship is to contemplate stories of uh, the, the lives of the practitioners of the way, to look at the stories to see how they demonstrate 
the friendship of enlightenment, enlightened friendship. And I've, I've been doing that with you and with other people too. I've been telling stories and listening to stories about practitioners of the way and looking to see what kind of friendship that is. In hopes of realizing that friendship in ever more deep ways in our life together. The words we just chanted at the beginning before I started talking by myself um, are a, um, they're actually like a, a poem written by the, <clears throat> the fairly ancient practitioner named Dogen. Ehe Dogen. He wrote the Ehe Koso Hotsugamon. And it's a, it's a verse about how to arouse the vow. What vow? The vow of the life of, of Buddha. But also, when I listen to it now, through the word friendship, I feel it's a vow to practice friendship. When he wrote it, he actually wrote, I vow, but I, I changed it to we vow. And so that change of, from I to we is pervading the universe. So even in New York, you say we. We vow from this life on throughout countless lives to hear the true Dharma. That is a very important part of friendship. The kind of friendship that promotes wisdom and freedom from suffering is a friendship where the friends Part of their friendship is that they're listening to the Dharma. That they're, I vow to hear the true Dharma so I can be a good friend. We, many of us want to be good friends to each other, or at least to some people. <laughs> but even the people we already want to be friends with, we sometimes f forget or get, dis get disoriented or even change our mind. Like today, I don't want to be your friend. Yesterday I did, but today, no. So part of, part of being a good friend is, it would be very helpful, if you want to be somebody's good friend, it would be very helpful if you heard 
the truth. Can you imagine that? That if you heard the truth, it might be helpful? <laughs> anyway, that's, that's a traditional uh, view in this, in this tradition, is that hearing the truth will help us be good friends to people. So we vow to hear it. And then also, he says, that upon meeting it, no doubt will arise. That you'll be free of doubts. About what? Well, about, for example, being good friends. And then, uh, when, you, when you do meet it, you can maintain the teaching. And then everybody, the great earth and all living beings together, will attain the Buddha way. When you meet the Dharma, which helps you be good friends, everybody will attain the way. And then it goes on, talking about other dimensions of friendship. So another dimension of friendship, which I mentioned earlier, is to reveal and disclose your shortcomings in your practice in the presence of Buddhas. It doesn't say um, that not to do it in the presence of your co-practitioners. And actually, that is also part of it, is to reveal and disclose your doubts, your distractions. Oh, one thing I forgot to say was, when, you, when we do meet the true Dharma, then we renounce worldly affairs. And so what's a worldly affair? Worldly affairs are like uh, not being a good friend. That's a worldly affair. The Buddha way is being good friends, good comrades. And worldly affairs are, are not being good friends, are getting distracted from friendship. So you can read. When you hear the true dharma, you can renounce distractions. And effortlessly remember the practice of good friendship. I also have been talking about um, storytelling, telling stories. And I propose that it is essential and, uh, yeah, it's essential and pretty much always the case that in consciousness, there's storytelling going on. My life is not just consciousness. My life is more than consciousness. It's, uh, it's a, bodily, a bodily function, which is not conscious. 
I am conscious of, of my body, but the body I'm conscious of is not my body. It's my story of my body. So in my consciousness, I have a story of my body and I have a story of your bodies. But my story of your body is not your body, which in a way is fortunate for you because if I stop thinking of your body, your body doesn't disappear. <laughs> but I often do think of your body, like right now I'm thinking of your bodies. And in other words, I'm imagining your bodies right now. And my imagination of your bodies is appearing in my consciousness. But also I have a physical relationship with you that's inconceivable, that I can't imagine. Our body, I have an idea that our bodies are in a non-conceptual relationship right now, that we're resonating with each other physically right now. But the complexity of that is far beyond my poor consciousness or yours. Consciousness, in a way, is a a poverty-stricken area. (laughs) But it's also a fabulous poverty-stricken area where we can make up fables. Our body can't make up fables, but it supports the consciousness that makes up fables. Consciousness is where we learn Buddhism. The body cannot learn it without consciousness. The body is where we have problems. I'm excuse me, the, the consciousness is where we have problems, which the body shares indirectly, but it's our consciousness is where we have delusion. It's in consciousness that we have birth and death. And it's in consciousness where we learn the teachings of how to be friendly to, in the situation of birth and death. It's in consciousness where we hear the words of the teachings which can liberate consciousness. So my consciousness is a, is a small part of my life, of my physical life and my cognitive life. I have a vast cognitive process that's going on right now, which I'm talking about right now. And I have an idea about it, but, but that vast cognitive process that I'm talking about, I don't know about. I can only talk about it. And that vast cognitive process, one of its, one of its functions, a bit really important function of the vast cognitive process of my life, is that it creates consciousness. And then consciousness can talk about its creator. And it can say, thank you, whoever you are. And thank you, body. The body and the cognitive process are the support of conscious life, where we tell stories. And the Buddhas and the ancestors are telling us that studying these stories, you will come to understand consciousness. And you will come to understand the self process, which is this storytelling.
at the beginning of this retreat, I told a story about the Buddha, the historical Buddha in India, Shakyamuni, and his attendant, Ananda, who was also his cousin. And the Buddha was sitting someplace, and Ananda came to him and sat down with him and said this, this is half the Buddha way. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. This is the entirety of the Buddha way, this friendship. And I remember a few moments ago that uh, a human being was appointed pope of the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. Uh, and his, the pope's name was Benedict. And I saw sort of on the newspaper kind of a headline of one of the first things Pope Benedict said was, this friendship opens the doors of happiness. And when I first saw it, I thought, well, if you just take away the this, I think I feel really in accord with it. Friendship opens the doors of happiness. I felt that this was kind of exclusive. But now I'm telling you that, that Ananda said this too. So this doesn't have to be exclusive. This friendship, this friendship is the entirety of the Buddha way. But that doesn't mean those friendships aren't. All friendship, true good friendship, is the door to happiness. Is the, is the entirety of the life of Buddha. So, Pope Benedict has retired, but I now give him the benefit of the doubt and say thank you, Pope Benedict, former Pope Benedict. And maybe, according to some Buddhas, maybe you will become Buddha. No, not maybe, you will become Buddha. And uh, so now we have another pope, and his name's Francis. How do you say Francis in Italian? You don't know, anybody know? How do you say Francis in Italian? Hey, Francis. <laughs> Pro probably Francisco, right? Anyway, Pope Francisco, I think that's probably, I'm guessing Francisco, not Francis. I think Francis is the English. Pope Francisco, I, I, I heard that he said, the truth is relationship. And again, I feel that, and I feel in accord with that, the truth is not my truth, it's not your truth, 
It's not our truth. It's our relationship. And our relationship is something that appears in consciousness. So we have a, I have a story of my relationship with you. Every one of you, my, I, I have this consciousness. It's, it's a poverty-stricken area, but it can make up stories about my relationship with each one of you like that. It's amazing. And it's nothing compared to its surrounding cognitive ocean. I shouldn't say nothing. It's just a little circle of water in the middle of the ocean. And even there, it can make up stories of relationship with all beings and then do it again the next moment. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> like you see somebody, just a blink of eye, and you make a story about your relationship with them, which may have a past or not. Like it also, ha or if it doesn't have a past, then it's got that part of the story, no past. And it's got a future or not, if it's not, I have no future with this person. That's an amazing relationship. No past, no future. Wow. <laughs> there's relationships like that, I suppose. In other words, there's stories like that. And this, 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 uh, this teacher named Dogen, he, he tells a story about going to China, looking for a teacher. And then he finally met a teacher whose name is Ru Jing. And when he met Ru Jing, he went to Ru Jing and uh, followed fairly standard formal greeting practices where he offered incense and bowed to the teacher Ru Jing. And then after he finished his bows, Ru Jing said, the true gate of face-to-face -face transmission of the teaching between Buddhas and Buddhas and ancestors and ancestors is now fully realized. The first time he met him, he said that the face-to-face -face transmission of the teaching between Buddhas is now realized in this meeting. The first time he met him, his teacher said, this friendship now realizes the meeting and the transmission of the teaching. And then um, Dogen studied with Ru Jing for a few years. And uh, at the end of that training, 
he became formally Ru Jing's successor. But when he first met him, the teacher immediately said, the friendship between Buddhas is now realized. Every time I hear that story, I think, kind of like, wow. The first time they met, the teacher says, this is, this is it. And this is not just this is it, but this is what all Buddhas and Buddhas do together, is they, they meet like this. And in our first meeting, we realize what has always been realized. I'm wondering now, is it a lack of faith on my part that I do not act on the impulse to say to you, the Dharma gate of direct face-to-face -face transmission between Buddha and Buddha, ancestor and ancestor, is now fully realized. So maybe I'll just say, can I say that now? I'm kind of like, I'm sort of like afraid to say it. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid it'll create a big scandal <laughs> in the Zen, you know, in the Zen world that I said that, if I would say that. Like people might say, that's too easy. Or they might say, that's too hard. Yeah. They might say, don't lay that on me. I don't, wanna, I don't want that to happen here this morning. <laughs> that's, a bit much, that's too much friendship for me. So in the story that Dogen tells, his teacher did not say, his teacher did not say, I'm, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that the Dharma gate of direct 
face-to-face -face transmission is now fully realized. I'm not going to say that. He didn't say that. He said it. I am going to say it. And he said it. But a lot of times in Zen they say, I'm not going to say you people are all Buddhas. I'm not going to say that. As a matter of fact, I'm not even going to talk about Buddha today. <laughs> That's one of the very common ways of teaching in Zen. I'm not going to say that you are excellent, sincere practitioners. Uh, when I first met Suzuki Roshi, who in, I guess has been said to be the founder of this place, there's a photograph of him in the next room, and, uh, and there's incense bowl in front, and that's called the Founders Hall, or Founders Location, Founders Shelf. <laughs> So he is honored as the founder of this practice place. And uh, so I, I met him one time. And the first sight I have of him, had of him was his feet. I was sitting like this on the floor of a room in San Francisco. And that room was a was the zendo of the San Francisco Zen Center at that time. And I was sitting on the floor, uh, cross-legged like this, and he walked around the hall, and I saw his feet. So the first, it was actually face-to-feet meeting. <laughs> and the young man at that time, I remember that young man thought, those feet can teach me Zen. I had come, I had made quite an effort to go um, to San Francisco to meet him. And the first thing I met was his feet. And I was happy that I thought his feet looked like teaching feet or teacher feet. And then uh, when the period of meditation was over and uh, then we chanted the Heart of Perfect Wisdom scripture. And then uh, they had a ritual where he would wait in his office, which was next to the meditation hall, at the door of his office, facing into the meditation hall. Like maybe that door there. Um, people would come in one door, like that door. And, and sit and meditate, and then they would go out through the other door, which was the door to his office. And he would stand at the, at the door facing into the room, and then each student would go out and meet him and bow to him and then go by him. You know? And then each, each student would, would meet him and bow and go by. So there was this meeting face to face. And he didn't say out loud, 
to each person. The Dharma gate of face-to-face -face transmission between Buddha and Buddha is now fully realized. He didn't say that. It was a silent meeting. And so when I came to my first chance to bow to him at that time, I put my hands together, like my palms together, and I looked at him, and he looked back at me, and then he looked away. And we bowed, and I went by. And in that meeting, I, I wondered. At the time, and I wondered for a while as I walked down the hall, when he looked away, was he afraid of me? When he looked away, was he saying, you know, you shouldn't be looking at me? That was rude of you to look directly in my face. So I thought, I thought, I had this thought went through my mind. Was he afraid of me? Did I offend him? Was it a perfect meeting? I didn't go on indefinitely imagining other possible <coughs> interpretations of that of that meaning. If he had just, I think if, if, if I looked at him and he looked back to me and we bowed, that would have been simpler for me. Like usually when I look at somebody, they look at me and they don't look away. I shouldn't usually, but often anyway. But in this case, since it was my first meeting, I was very attentive to what did his eyes do? Well, they looked at me and then they looked away. It was kind of like significant. And, and I quickly came to the conclusion, I do not know what happened. I do not know what that was. I don't know if I did right, did wrong, did good, did bad, did neither. And I thought, it's not so much whether I did right or wrong, actually. That, that I said, that's not the point. That's, it's important. It's important that you do right or wrong. What's really important is, I don't know what happened. And I thought, that's what I came for is to meet somebody face to face and not know what's happening and, and not run away from that and come back for more. And I did. And I kept not knowing what's happening. And then sometimes something nice would happen. I'd say, well, that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> or something not so nice would happen. Well, that's what's happening. But that's not really. That's just my story. So I had a lot of stories about him. And I was enjoying those, studying those stories. But he was also teaching, you know, we don't know what our relationship is. And even if we say it's face-to-face -face transmission, that's just talk. But we do say that sometimes. We, you know, it is sometimes said, the Dharma gate of face-to-face -face transmission between Buddha and Buddha is now fully realized. We say that sometimes. In order to ritually enact that we don't know who each other are. And we're still interested in each other. We have stories of each other, and we study the stories, and we practice friendship with our stories of each other. We have practice 
friendship with our stories of our relationship. And, uh, and the story I tell is that the tradition is partly studying stories, but it's also stories of people who have been studying stories for thousands of years. The Buddha and his and Ananda had a story of each other, and they were studying that story. Ananda said, Lord, this is half the Buddha way. That was his story. And the Buddha said, don't say that. That was the Buddha's story. And then Ananda had a story in response to that. They had, they're telling stories to each other, and they're giving feedback to each other on their stories, and they're studying stories together. And then that story about their studying their stories is now transmitted 2,500 years, and is still wonderfully surprising and rich. The Buddha's tongue is still warm. What time is it? 1109. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> There's a story about Chinese Zen that um, in its sort of like in its great fluorescence, there was uh, there was this flower called the Zen flower. So there was this great Buddhist. Uh, China was like like a Buddhist country at a certain point, and at a certain point there was this great flower called the Zen school one flower, and they say it had five petals. And the five petals are like five schools. And each school was like a particular family. They're all part of the same basic family, but then the, there were five main subfamilies. There might have been some people who were floating around who weren't in those families, but anyway, they talk about these five families. And uh, this retreat uh, just has a couple more days, so I, I probably won't be able to give you an in-depth sense, sense of each family. The Sotos, one of the families is the Soto family or the Cao Dong family. So actually, I told you some stories about the Soto family this morning. Dogen and Ru Jing are the Soto family people. Suzuki Reshi is Soto family. So yes, you have something of the Soto family. And there's the Rinzai family. 
the Lin Ji family, and then there's the Fa Yun family, and then there's the Yun Mun family, and then there's the Guiyang family. The people in each of these families are also, for me, they're in my they're in my family, but I'm not I'm not a disciple of all those families. I'm not a successor to all those families, but I feel like they're my dear cousins and uncles. We have the same grandparents. In all of these families, and in each of these families, it might be the case that the main commitment of each of these families is Buddha's friendship in five different family styles of friendship. And each of these family styles, the point of them is to transmit the true teaching. The point of each of these schools, the point of the whole flower, is to protect and maintain and transmit the perfection of wisdom. Each family has this great jewel which it has inherited and which it wants to give to the next generation. It inherits, it inherits through friendship, and it gives through friendship. And there's some difficulty in this. The friendship has some difficulties because it's taking care of something very precious. In the perfection of wisdom scriptures, at various points, it says, when you have something very precious, like a precious jewel, it is surrounded by turbulence and hostility. Not just turbulence and hostility, it might also be surrounded by something else too. The wisdom of the Buddhas, the perfection of wisdom, is the most precious thing. And surrounding the perfection of wisdom is turbulence and hostility. That's what the scripture says. Surrounding the most important kind of friendship is turbulence and hostility. And it says, those who are not frightened by this are the great bodhisattvas. Those who take care of the jewel, even though there's this 
hostility and violence around it, those are the bodhisattvas who, who receive and transmit the good friendship of Buddha's perfect wisdom. But by the way, just want you to know that if you're doing this work, you might notice that there's some hostility in the neighborhood. Some turbulence. Around what? Around the most precious things. So, you know, Las Vegas, I understand, has the most highly developed security system, maybe outside the White House. Because they have all that, all those, and jewel and jewelry conventions are often held in Las Vegas. The jewelers come to Las Vegas to have their convention because Las Vegas is one of the safest places, supposedly, to bring your jewels out. And like I understand, this neighborhood's quite safe because there's mafia around. So people bring their jewels into this neighborhood. They bring the Dharma into this neighborhood. They bring the Catholic Church into this neighborhood. They bring their children into this neighborhood. Every family has jewels, and the main jewel of the family, of course, well, I don't know. The main jewel, is, is the main jewel the mother or is it the daughter? I don't know. Anyway, the daughter, huh? What? It's the relationship, yeah. The relationship between the mother and the daughter is the most precious thing in a family. The relationship between the father and the daughter is the most precious thing. The relationship between the brothers and sisters is a very precious thing. And we know that that's surrounded by lots of violence and hostility and competition. Right? And still, we hang in there, maybe. I want to tell you an abbreviation of a story, and if you want more details later, let me know. But the story, the abbreviation of the story is my daughter sent me an email about an article written by a, a family systems psychologist. And in the email, the guy told a story about dinner at his house. And so the, the story about the dinner is the people in the family get together at the dinner table. All the jewels in the family are at the table, right? But some of the people who are at the table are not actually being that friendly to the other jewels. Like they aren't, like the children aren't there like, oh my God, there's my mother, my mother, wow. <laughs> There's my father, my dear, precious father. And my brothers and sisters, we're together here. We're alive and we're well. 
and we're going to eat together. How wonderful. <laughs> now maybe the parents are like, oh, there's my dear children. Maybe they are. And then they say, but my dear children are not paying any attention to me or their mother. They're texting. <laughs> or they're playing with, you know, they're doing some, they're fighting with each other. Or they're what, you know. And then the parents, because they care so much for their children, they don't want them to miss the opportunity, this precious opportunity of the family being together. So they ask the children to put down their iPhones and their iPads and their video games, and the children don't want to. They want to keep playing their games, and the parents ask more strongly, and the children resist more strongly, and pretty soon nobody's at the table anymore because they love each other so much that they can't stand to be in the same room. And so that's the story the psychologist told. And he says, how can families stay together? How can they stay together? And the answer he gave was by means of strong family stories. Strong stories of family. So in an ordinary family, because there's so much preciousness there, because the parents care so much for the children and the children care so much for the parents, it's extremely, it can be very turbulent around that jewel. We need to tell stories in order to be able to stay together. The turbulence isn't going to go away. The turbulence is actually honing the jewel. We need to hang in there. And so Zen is the same thing. We have these stories to hold the school together to take care of the jewel. And some of these stories are about the turbulence that occurs in the process of caring for the jewels of perfect wisdom. This is a partial, partially an introduction to the importance of stories about the family that takes care of perfect wisdom. It's, and it's also to prepare you that there, some of these stories may create some turbulence. When you, when you see the jewel in the story, you may get upset. But the story about the situation which is potentially upsetting to you to listen to is a story that's at least a thousand years old in many cases and has been transmitted to encourage people to continue to be friendly even when things get rough. When things get tough, we need to remember that the boat of compassion is not rowed over smooth waters. So now it's almost time to stop, right? So I, there's one family I'd like to tell you about, and uh, I, I, there won't be time before lunch to finish this family story, but it's a story about the founder of one of the schools, one of the five schools. And the founder's name is, uh, in English, Dharma Eyes. 
That's his name. His, his Buddhist name is Dharma Eyes, Fa Yin. So he was a. He, I don't know exactly what the motivation was, but he went to the monastery when he was seven. He left home with, I guess, with his parents' support, because he wanted to go and study. Maybe they sent him, and he was resisting. It doesn't say the details. But anyway, when he was seven years old, he went to practice in a Buddhist monastery. And he, uh, he became a very good student and learned uh, the teachings and the practices. And he also studied the Confucian classics. And then, uh, on a particular occasion, he went on a pilgrimage with uh, one, two, three, I think three other Buddhist monks. Two of them apparently were already masters of monasteries. And, uh, but still, even though they were masters of monastery, they were still practicing pilgrimage to visit teachers. So at that time in China, this is like late Tang dynasty, early Sung dynasty, even some masters of monasteries would go and study with uh, other masters. Just like, for example, uh, an abbot of, for example, like the abbot of this place might go study with some teacher. Like Tia is the teacher here. She might go study with some other teacher. And she might go with a group of people to study with some teacher. Like recently, Galen Godwin came here, right, to visit. So she's the abbess of the Houston Zen Center. So she went with a group of people on a pilgrimage to Japan last spring, and they went to visit teachers. So um, some Buddhist teachers are not so arrogant, and they can actually go visit other teachers. It's great. And in China, that was often the example of a well, well-cultivated, well-educated practitioners would go st- visit other t- many teachers or some great teacher. Maybe somebody who is like just about to die and they want to meet the person before they go. Maybe some young teacher who is in her 40s or 50s and she's got her own students, but she hears that the great master so-and-so is about to die. So you should go see him if you haven't met him yet. Go pay your respects and ask him, ask him if she has any last instructions to you. Anyway, the Fa Yen was traveling with two other leaders of monasteries and another monk. <clears throat> But he wasn't the head of a monastery at that time. He was, he has not, he was not yet, <clears throat> he did not have his own group of students. So he's traveling with these people. They're heading west in China. And uh, they hit us, they get caught in a snowstorm. 
and so they have to stop uh, and seek shelter, and they find a shelter in a monastery called, the name of the monastery I think is called Ditsang, um, or Japanese way of saying it would be Jizo. So it's a monastery which has the same name. Do you know Jizo, Jizo Bodhisattva? Jizo Bosatsu? It's that, uh, it's often uh, represented by sculptures of a monk. Anyway, the name of the monastery was Jizo, which means earth store or earth womb. It's the name of a bodhisattva who, um, you know, made a great vow. And uh, at Green Gulch in, uh, in California, Green Gulch Farm, we have a beautiful, huge, not huge, six-foot or five-foot statue of Jizo Bodhisattva. So they went to a monastery called Jizo, Jizo Se, or, or no, Jizo Ji, or Ditsang Tse. It was the name of the monastery, Earth Store Monastery. And the abbot there is called by the name of the monastery. So the abbot's called Earth Store, or Ditsang. Um, this story, uh, one of the places you can find this story in your future studies is Case 12 of the Book of Serenity. So these, these four monks are holding up at this monastery, and they go in, they're allowed to come in, and they're gathered around a brazier, warming up their hands and feet from their walking through the snow. And the abbot comes, Ditsang, and he says, uh, by the way, he comes, to, he comes to them. They don't, they don't go to the monastery and pay their respects to him and then go to the brazier. They just went to the brazier without, without acknowledging the abbot. Which I can imagine is so cold, just want to get warmed up. And maybe later they would go visit the abbot. But anyway, before they went to visit the abbot, the abbot went to them. And they said, um, may I ask something? And one of the monks, his name was Shushan, which I think means master of the mountain. And he was master of a temple called master of the mountain. And so Shushan says to Ditsang, he says, sure, if you have a question, go ahead, ask it. That's the way it's translated. I don't know if he was that nonchalant. But he, started, he didn't turn around and say, oh, I'm sorry we didn't pay our respects sooner, Reverend Abbott. Thank you for having us. He didn't say that. He said, sure, go ahead, ask a question if you want to. It doesn't sound that friendly. But anyway, that's the story so far. Some of these Zen stories, uh, the people are kind of, uh, what's it called? 
swashbuckle, huh? Abrasive. Abrasive or brazen? Yeah, abrasively brazen. Brazenly abrasive. Anyway, he says, sure, go ahead, ask the question. And uh, Dietzang says, are you elders, because these are elder monks, are you elders the same or different from the mountains and rivers and great earth? And Shusan said, different. And Dietzang held up two fingers. And, uh, and then uh, Shusan's brother urgently said, identical, identical. <laughs> and then Dietzang held up two fingers again and left. And then Fa Yen, Dharma Eyes, said, I wonder what he meant by that. And Shu San said, Ah, he just did that. <laughs> and Fa Yen said, You shouldn't be so crude. He might have had some real good meaning there. And then I guess the snow let up, and it was time for the four of them to leave. And Fayen said, uh, you guys go ahead. I think I'm going to stay and study with Dietzong for a while. I think he might have something important for me that I can study. So I'll study with him for a while, and if it doesn't work out, I'll come and find you. So the three of them went off, and Fayen stayed with Dietzong. And they practiced good friendship together. So you can imagine how things worked out. And if you can't, I'll tell you more stories to help you. <laughs> Some of which you're already familiar with, and you may, whether you know it or not, you'll recognize them when I tell you. What time is it now? 11.33. Same as yesterday. Yeah. We, had, we had 11.33 yesterday. So now we have Fa Yen living together with Dietzong in I, what I would say friendship. They're cultivating their Dharma friendship, studying the way together. And Fayan, day by day, continues to practice with Dietzong, with Earth Store. After I, approximately, I think maybe after three months, Shushan comes back to visit. Like, I haven't seen my friend for a while. I wonder what he's doing. So he comes back to Dietzong, to the temple, to the teacher, and he meets Dietzong. And Dietzong said, where have you been? He said, well, I went south. 
and Di Song says, how is Buddhism down there in the South? And Xu Shan says, there, there's a lot of discussion going on. And uh, Di Song said, well, how does it compare to me here uh, planting rice fields and making rice balls? And Shishan says, well, how does that take care of the world? You know, you being here making rice balls. And uh, Ditsang says, what do you call the world? What's the world? And Shishan acquiesces and bows. Somebody says, Ditsang should have said, when, when, when he said, how does that compare to me making these rice balls? And Shushan said, well, how does that take care of the world? Instead of saying, what do you call the world? He should have said, these rice balls are really good. <laughs> the whole world will come in friendship to these rice balls. So that's the first part of the story of Fayen, the founder of the Fayen school, and his friendship with Shushan and Ditsang. And I'll tell you some more stories about his friendship with Ditsang and Shushan, and I'll also tell you some stories about his friendship with some other people. So you can see this particular family style of friendship. And perhaps you can also see the perfect wisdom that lives in this friendship. Maybe you already do. I'm, uh, I actually am sorry that I that there's not more time for you to um, bring up lots of stuff now this morning in response to these stories of friendship. Because again, we have lunches in a few seconds. And we must have lunch. Because we, we appreciate the great effort to make us lunch. And we're somewhat interested in eating it too. <laughs> By the way, I want to say that the food has been really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for the food you've made. It's really been great. I have no expectations. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.